Love talk on Babs Rolls Ivy. I am delighted this morning to have two of one of my favorite two of my favorite people from one of my favorite organizations in the city. Uh, composer in residence Joel Thompson from the New Haven Symphony Orchestra and Maestro Alistair Neal from the New Haven Symphony Orchestra. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, Babs. How are you? Good to see you. It is good to see you. Uh, is your time winding down? My time. Yes. Oh, not not yet. No, I've got. Okay. Uh, this is my. I have two more seasons here, okay. so it's going to ah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a long. Oh, uh, just, there's a lot, many checking. many things ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just checking, making sure. <laughs> hey, Joe. Hello. How are you? So I was at the Stetson Library when you had that wonderful conversation with Judge Graves about your upcoming piece um, that you're doing on Sunday with the New Haven Symphony Orchestra at, uh, at the uh, Lyman Center, um, Awaken the Sleeper. And, uh, and I just so enjoyed that conversation so much. And I just wanted y'all to come on and talk a little bit about what this concert means, what it looks like, and why um, the two pieces of music that uh, the premiere of this one piece of music uh, based on uh, influenced by James Baldwin, and then the second piece of music I guess from 1905 or something. So I I, I want to hear the thinking around this particular production that's we're going to see we're going to listen to on Sunday. Joel, would you like to start about uh, talking about to awaken the sleeper, and then I can sort of pivot to Shostakovich or however you sure. like. Sure. Yes. Um, well, to awaken the sleeper is a piece for orchestra and orator. Um, or narrator, I suppose, uh, featuring uh, Baldwin's text being spoken with the orchestra providing a musical backdrop, almost like a concerto for uh, Baldwin's words. And a lot of them are taken from No Name in the Street, uh, his 1972 piece of uh, nonfiction, two essays, Take Me to the Water to Be Baptized. Um, And one... Some other excerpts are from his letter to Angela Davis, from also from the 70s, and one from his last speech uh, at the National Press Club that he gave in 1986, the year before he died. And those, all of those excerpts are speaking to ideas of power in the United States, of identity, of justice. And uh, it was just a wonder for me to, a wonderful opportunity for me to sort of explore those words. And in this case, in this performance, um, I will also be the orator and I will practice delivering those words. Um, I will go back to being a, a performer, um, which I have a little anxiety about, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think Alistair can talk a little bit more about the juxtaposition of my work with Rostakovich, though. I'm happy to do that. And to be honest, I can't remember, this is a chicken and egg situation, whether which came first in my thinking of these two pieces, but very quickly, it became apparent to me that um, 
that they belonged together uh, because they do have a fair amount of DNA in common, not specifically musically, but more in their message about, as Joel says, um, in a sense, speaking truth to power and confronting some pretty stark realities. Um, and and for Joel's piece, it, it it didn't make sense to just stick it haphazardly in the middle of a conventional program with a Tchaikovsky symphony or a Brahms symphony in the second half. Context matters, particularly with a work as powerful as To Awaken the Sleeper. Um, so I I it sprang to mind that I think in many ways an ideal pairing will be this incredibly um, dramatic and powerful symphony by Shostakovich, his 11th of 15 that he wrote. And this is symphony number 11. It's subtitled The Year 1905, though it was actually written in 1957 or premiered then. Mm. But it deals, it deals with um, one of the formative events of the Russian Revolution, which of course happened in 1917, 12 years later, but part of uh, the the brewing storm that preceded that was uh, that revolution was this event that took place in 1905 in St. Petersburg at the um, uh, the Winter Palace, the square, the palace square for where of the Tsar's residence in a bitterly cold day in January, uh, a group of citizens had assembled to uh, plead with the Tsar for better living conditions. Things were pretty dire. And instead of being met with a sympathetic ear, they were met with gunfire and there was a massacre. And so this symphony charts in chilling detail um, through the course of an unbroken hour and its four movements, uh, the events of that day in January, um, the gathering of the crowd in the very still and, and frigid when, uh, square, the palace square, um, the growing uh, outrage and or, or uh, uh, anxiety and uh, fervor of the crowd wishing to petition the czar. And then being then, and this is the second movement, the actual massacre of the, by the czar's troops of the crowd. The third movement is a, a slow, uh, mournful lament, which contains more than a trace of the seeds of anger. And the last movement is a call to action, uh, 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 channeling the rage into deeds. Um, and, and basically, it's a warning. It ends with a, 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 an incredibly fast, um, um, like pounding of horses' hooves, um, uh, a closing, a closing part in which there's a big chime that's sounding the alarm, and it's basically saying we're coming for you sooner or later. Wow! So you know, a little light entertainment at the symphony. <laughs> Listen, the New Haven Symphony Orchestra is probably the most progressive uh, organization in the city right now. <laughs> <laughs> Who no. knew? I mean, I love the way that you can tell that you can use this music or this music can tell us history um, in a way uh, that I don't think anything else can. Like, it just adds to the richness of, of why we study history. Uh, but to do it through this medium is uh, extraordinary. So, so now I, I'm starting to understand why the Baldwin piece makes sense, right? At least, at least should I be thinking of it that way, Joel? Like, should I be seeing how this lays on top of each other? Yes, I feel that um, the piece to awaken the sleeper and even in the title um, is a call to action. It's an attempt to, to awaken the sleeper. 
even though the first lines that I will say as the orator in the piece is, we cannot awaken the sleeper. Baldwin is sort of ex ex expressing this fatigue with trying to t wake up people to the truth, but seeing that it's falling on deaf ears a lot of times or sort of confronting a wall of willful ignorance. Um, even though he expressed that fatigue throughout his entire career, he tried to continually awaken the sleeper, tried to call people to action through his fictional works, through his nonfiction works. And in giving this piece now at the at the Lyman Center, it's an, a chance for me to amplify his words and also be a similar call to action that like at the end of the Shostakovich symphony. Um, it might not be one to call to arms or anything, but it's it's really just a call to look around and and see where we are in our progression as a society. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think the juxtaposition does make a lot of sense for sure. So Alistair, when you when you think about the season, did you did you know that this was the work that Joel was going to submit and then you build something around it? Or like, how do you all decide that Sunday will be the day that you do this piece for this reason? Like, how does that work? Well, that's a great question. And it's 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 a little bit more haphazard. I don't just sit down one day and think from scratch, I have a complete <laughs> blank slate in my head. What are we going to do next season? There are all sorts of ideas that are germinating and, and happen during the course of conversations. So with Joel, we have been talking about this for uh, a while because this is now the New England premiere. We're part of the commissioning process. So it's been on my radar. Um, but, you know, uh, 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 as far as the rest of the season goes, it's more uh, it's it's a more gradual process, and no one thing happens all at once. Um, and this season, in particular, since four of the concerts are going to be conducted uh, by guest conductors um, who are uh, being viewed as as the person to come after me. Um, so there was that part of it as well. They're not just my programs, but I um, I'm I'm, so, I'm just I, in that sense I was kind of supervising just overall, um, so that the. For instance, that, that not all of the guest conductors would conduct a Beethoven symphony in case that was their preference. So I had to make sure that there was a balanced diet throughout the season, which actually ended up being very, uh, a very smooth process. Wow. I, I love the way that this is thought out in a, I mean, you, you do have some uh, uh, rules or, or parameters in which to work from that, um, uh, uh, that you, you think about how this music marries to each other. So Joel, did you, did you, what, what was it about the Baldwin words that inspired you? I mean, you could have picked anybody, you know, to be inspired. Uh, but what was it about the James Baldwin words that moved you? Yes. Um, I think for me, reading James Baldwin in the wake of George Floyd's death, um, as I was trying to find solace in various artistic media, um, you know, I think happening upon Baldwin's words again um, and seeing the words that he wrote so long ago and how relevant they were, um, I felt less alone. Um, I felt that here is someone who's feeling exactly what I'm feeling, this friction between a deep pain and a deep grief in how this country is treating certain uh, identities um, uh, and not 
uh, allowing justice or accountability um, to happen with these communities, but also on the other side, a deep love for this country and also a, a, a love for the possibility that this country um, contains. And I think that love, uh, as I described Baldwin's love as an impossible love, um, it's, yeah, I, I think, I think that's really what, what drew me to Baldwin's words. There, there are so many, I mean, so many expressions of anger and just righteous anger and, and, uh, that I could turn to in the wake of all of the, the chaos of, of 2020 and, and, and the conversations of, of racial reckoning in its wake. But, um, there's something about Baldwin holding space for that righteous anger while also in the other hand, um, believing in the experiment of American democracy and hoping for a positive outcome, uh, that I think particularly drew me to his words, uh, and, and a chance to amplify those, um, in the context of the classical music hall, which, you know, uh, outside of New Haven Symphony Orchestra, it can be quite um, conservative in its outlook, you know, or, or in, in, in its culture. Um, and so to provide a space for Baldwin's, you know, galvanizing and um, soul-stirring words in that context was, uh, you know, a wonderful chance for me to you know, take a risk, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> I, I, I love it. So, you know, Alistair, um, uh, American theater is changing. The audience is changing. Um, the demographics are changing. Everything is changing. Do, are you, do you see that in, in, in symphonies? Are they starting to sort of understand um, the audience that they are, are accustomed to playing to is changing? And, and how do you adjust to that? I think it probably depends on where you are. Um, and uh, I will say that from what I'm understanding from our box office, that 25% of our audience on Sunday are people that have never been to the symphony before. Whoa. Wow. So I find that tremendously encouraging. Also a little bit, if you think about it for just one second, a little bit um, stress inducing because it means that we have a chance to connect and, and you only get one chance to make a first impression. Um, and this is, I, uh, I'm hoping that the fact that this is a very unconventional kind of program will actually work in our favor. So it might dispel some of the old myths about, um, about classical music and about orchestras. Um, but that, that remains to be seen. We'll probably, we'll find out around five o'clock on, uh, on <laughs> Sunday afternoon, whether this uh, is connected or not, but I'm, I'm optimistic that the strength of the music will, will, uh, of both of these incredible pieces will uh, um, land where we're hoping it will. So, so when you when you see a twenty five percent, a twenty five percent of the audience has never been to the to the to the symphony before, um, does that give you opportunity to think forward about maybe we could do some more creative things, and maybe I could introduce some other kind of music and. Most certainly, most certainly, it, it is. Uh, it's a great challenge to have. Um, I, it, there is a I will say there's a tremendous amount of interest in in, uh, in particularly in in Joel's piece. Uh, I think that's uh, that is uh, bringing a lot of these people into the hall, and 
that's that's great, but but I mean, it, it does absolutely um, uh, lay the challenge at our feet say, to say how can we how can we continue to engage with our community? How can we bring in new audiences and and uh, share the love that all of us have with our art form to make it even more relevant for the twenty first century? So, so Joel, do you? Do you feel the weight of representing a lot of things in this role as composer and president? I mean, it. I mean, we young kids see you, I see you, we see you, and of course we're proud and all that. But does does that help you engage new audiences and 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 help you sort of share to people that you know what this music is for you too? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I, 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 I definitely think about um, writing music that makes my community proud, and and um, I, I definitely feel that that duty to have a be a positive representation of of my community, all of all of the intersections of my identity. Um, but in the end, uh, composition for me is. Uh, practice of personal expression. Um, the music that I write is going to be, you know, I, I, my biggest priority is honesty. I want my music to be true to who I am and true to how I'm feeling and, and what I'm thinking about. And I think by holding true, holding true to that priority, to that principle, I, I hope that I can be definitely an inspiration for you know young black kids thinking about entering this space as as creatives in in any artistic field really um it's you know i i had to see that it was possible uh to to be a black composer in order to really pursue i'm so glad that i saw alvin singleton's praise maker in at play at the atlanta symphony when i was in high school and i saw a guy with tight curly hair like me walk out on stage and take a bow afterwards. So I, I, I understand the importance of those moments of representation. But also, I love the fact that, um, you know, Alvin got to write whatever music that he wanted to write. There was so much freedom in what he wanted to do. And that inspired me to pursue my own. And I hope that I can be that inspiration for anyone else who is um, wanting to do that. And that's why I'm so glad a part of my duties as composer in residence with New Haven Symphony Orchestra is to work with high school age composers. Uh, and just this past Tuesday, we got one of our monthly meetings um, at ECA and, you know, we're exploring clarinet quintets this, this season and um, they're, you know, working on learning about the instrument and fine-tuning their skills that we've been working on for the last season. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that I have this opportunity as composer in residence, for sure. Oh, I love it. So, Alistair, do you feel some responsibility toward educating an audience about the richness and the, and the, the richness of other composers that are not white out there? Do you, do you feel that responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, this is all part of, I, I think, a long overdue movement um, to, I, I, I call it um, broadening the stage, uh, making the stage uh, larger, more generous, more open 
uh, to all sorts of voices um, that haven't been heard. Uh, and I feel that is critical to certainly to my role here as music director and a number of places too. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will see it that way, um, that we are making, you know, real, real strides in, in that regard. It's never, it's never enough, but um, it, uh, yes, in answer to your question, I very much feel the responsibility um, to carry this mission forward. And, and so we all you, win because there's fantastic music. Oh, it know? is amazing, amazing so, music. So many sources. But when you when you when you put some some unknown or little known music on the playlist for the for a concert, um, how much time do you have to spend trying to explain or or do you just let the music speak for itself? And then it's like, oh, by the way, African American composer or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you do you tell them first? Or do you let them experience the music or like, how does that, I know, I know what you did for, uh, for Miss Price. Like you gave us a whole education about Miss Price and then you backed it up with several concerts of Miss Price's work. Right. And, and that was a big deal. That was a real learning experience for a lot of people. Um, So, I mean, talk to me about how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you put this music together to share new, 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 new works that uh, that that would probably go unheard. Well, broadly speaking, it's purposeful. Like I I I I, I look at a season and go, okay, how is our balance of um, the, the traditional canon um, uh, with underrepresented composers? And I just keep myself disciplined to make sure that um, that there is. The, um, you know, the, a real balance, uh, but but part of it is just organic at this point. I'm just interested in in accumulating. Is there's so much with the internet? There's so many sources that you can't say, well, I wasn't aware that that existed anymore. There's, you can't use that as an excuse. Um, that's just laziness. So uh, keeping myself open to hearing new voices and and exploring. Um, uh, further some of the voices that we've already brought. For instance, this is the third season that I programmed in a row with more Florence Price's music at the last concert, um, which is absolutely a, 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 a celebration of Black uh, composers uh, throughout all, all of the composers on that uh, on that last program uh, are Black. Um, we're playing her piano concerto uh, in one movement, as well as as this uh, uh, reconstructed, reorchestrated uh, Helen Higgins uh, piano concerto. Uh, so, you know, these are all, it's, it's just, it honestly is just a natural thing at this point for me. I don't, I don't have to think too purposefully about it because I, I, I know that that's just where my instincts are intending to go. Mm. So Joe, talk to me about inspiration and, and, um, because we, we never think of classical music as modern music, but I'm wrong in that, right? Because classical music, if you write a classical tune today, it's modern, but its roots are in, you know, some other time. But so how, how are you inspired? Like what brings you inspiration and what, what, what moves you? Can you hear a piece before you write a piece when you are inspired by something? Yeah, I, I guess my, my inspiration is a lot of times, yes, I'm in dialogue with 
historical music of the Western European art music tradition, for sure. Um, I'm listening to Bach and I'm listening to Beethoven and Rachmaninoff and Shostakovich and um, all of these, you know, canonic figures. Um, but I'm also inspired by other artists making music at the same time as I am. You know, I'm inspired by Esperanza Spalding and Janelle Monet and, and, you know, just the things that they're doing in their particular idioms and, and genres and art forms that are inspiring to me as a fellow artist, just in dialogue with a different tradition. And I'm also working towards, I think, trying to bring all of the musical styles and rhythms and, and melodies and harmonies that represent myself into the classical music space and hoping that it still remains classical music <laughs> or maybe not even caring so much about those genre designations and just wanting to, uh, again, prioritize honesty in my expression. And so I, I really consider it to this, this craft to be a practice. I want the music that I create 20 years from now to be different from the music that I'm creating right now. Um, because I, I, I want it to represent my growth as a human being, as an artist. Um, yeah, and so I, I find inspiration from other artists who are prioritizing the same values that I am in my music. And like the few that I list, listed, uh, I think do the same. And I also wrote my thesis um, on Nina Simone and her 1964 concert in Carnegie Hall. And there's another artist that provides inspiration for me and you know, she's singing I Loves You Porgy one second, and then Lorraine Hansberry pulls her to the side and said, what are you doing for the revolution? And then she starts writing Mississippi Goddamn. And so, you know, there's, there's, you know, a, a parallel, there's a, there's a that clear inspiration um, from Nina Simone to, to what I'm trying to do with my work. Um, yeah. <laughs> so on that, and on that same vein, I mean, would you, as a as a as a composer now, could somebody pull your coats the same way that Lorraine Hansberry pulled at Nina Simone? Like, could somebody say, Joe, what are you doing for the for the people or the revolution or whatever whatever it is? Like, could you could you hear that and and could you respond in kind? I mean, I I think you can and you are, but I'm just saying, like, that's a you that's know, a very I, distinct thing. The foundation of of good composition in my mind is listening, um, listening to oneself, listening to the community in which you're presenting the art. Um, and I'm always open to any criticism or praise. And if one, you know, luminary in their field pulls me aside and says, I, I would like to hear more, you know, an exploration of that, I will consider it, assess it according to my own set of values and morals. And then I'm, I might, you know, so like I, I welcome a moment like that. Um, uh, I think with with Nina Simone, she was singing jazz standards at the same time at, at her premiere at Carnegie Hall um, while Dr. King was uh, imprisoned in Birmingham. Uh, and uh, the, the, the sort of friction between reality and, and the sort of art space that Nina was occupying um, I think it was necessary for uh, Lorraine Hansby, Hansbury to awaken the sleeper <laughs> um, in, in Nina Simone's artistry. And it, she did definitely wake up. In fact, she got sort of pegged as making only civil rights music for a time. 
um, no more jazz standards. But, you know, she found other ways to be subversive, singing like Black is the color of my true love's hair. And it means something different when a full afro Black woman is singing that on some of the most hollowed stages around the country. Um, this this tune of uh, completely different origin from, from her ethnicity. So, yeah, uh, there are ways to be subversive. There are ways to explore honesty in one's artistic expression. And, and I'm uh, trying to find my way as I continue to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elsa, tell me, what, what still excites you about this music, about classical music and being the maestro to, to classical music? Um, I don't really think of myself as maestro. Um, just, just you know, I wave my arms around. I mean, it's, I think that's starting to be a <laughs> oh, little no. bit of a... No, 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 because I can't do term. that. So well, that, that's, a, that's a skill set that you have. That is hard work for. I don't have that skill set. Like I couldn't get up there and conduct nothing. But you get up there and you you do this work and people are excited by it. Tell me what still excites you about this. I'll tell you. um, It's it's the fact that it's in a perpetual state of renewal. Um, This is music that has a whatever. I mean, classical is such an unwieldy uh, of all the bad terms that could be used to describe this art form i suppose classical is maybe the least bad but it's still uh it it's it's uh, it's still so hard to to find the right kind of term but whatever it is that we're talking about it, it stretches back hundreds of years and if you're re-examining a piece by mozart or bach or schubert um or whether it's that or creating uh, a new tradition as we are with uh, with the new england premiere of joel's piece um, it's part of a continuum. It's, it's part of this huge, um, unbroken chain of music, and and there's always something new to explore. You know, uh, uh, I'll be doing Joel's piece for the first time on Sunday. I'm quite certain it won't be the last time I'm doing it. But whatever the point is that I do the next performance, I'll be looking at it with fresh eyes, and I know that I'll be able to extract something new from it. And that that is a beautiful thing. And so, Joe, same question for you. What what still excites you? Like, the fact that you can create new music, bring your own spin to, to, to this genre of music. Um, what, what excites you about that? Well, I have a deep love for this genre. I grew up listening to a lot of it. And, you know, I, I turn to it for solace, uh, some of the goodies and the oldies. Um, and but at the same time, I think the I I love the collaboration aspect of it. Um, I'm also composer in residence at Houston Grand Opera, and I'm you know excited about you know you can probably you will probably be able to tell my penchant for drama when you hear my my piece on Sunday. But um, <laughs> working with singers and in working in a very dramatic medium and getting to tell getting to explore new mediums of storytelling through this music is what excites me now. Um, And the highly collaborative nature of it. As a composer, all I do is put dots on a page, but the music doesn't really live until, you know, Alistair studies it and looks at it and has an orchestra and, you know, conducts it. And I don't make a sound at all on stage, but they make the music, you know, and I just love that process. Um, 
I, again, this Sunday, it will be a little different because I will also be performing, <laughs> which is... You will um, be making a sound. <laughs> I will be making a sound. <laughs> I'll be following Baldwin's score and regurgitating his words. Um, but I, I'm I'm excited for, for that particular collaboration and uh, the thrill of it all. Um, but also, you know, it's... Uh, I, I agree with what what Alice just said. There's this sense of renewal that even though the the idiom is quite old and hundreds of years old, there's something that I can say um, now with this music that hasn't been said before. Um, yeah, so that that's what's really excites me about classical music. I appreciate that, and I, Alice, I appreciate that. Uh, now I I think of um, the symphony as another medium of storytelling. Whereas I didn't think of that way before, and uh, and I'm glad that I can see it that way. And I think that's that's the trajectory of my learning about this music that I come to see it as uh, another way to tell stories. Um, so thank you for that. Um, exactly right. So Sunday is the day um, at Lyman. How's that relationship going? How's it being in that space for this music? We're um, we're very very happy and and grateful to SESU um, for giving giving us our home uh, the season. We've just started. Literally last night was the first rehearsal of the new season, so it was kind of the first day back at school. Um, we're <laughs> we're, uh, we're all excited to be back in class together, and uh, we are we're adjusting to the acoustics, getting to play the hall. That's a gradual process. Uh, that's just the first of four rehearsals this week, and then of course the rest of the season, as we play ourselves into the new space. Um, so there's just uh, a, a lot of exciting possibilities ahead. That's for sure. Well, I am grateful for your time this morning. It is always a pleasure to see you, Alistair, and it is so nice oh to have you here, Joel. It really is a nice a nice feeling to have you in community with us. So uh, I'm no looking pleasure. forward. I will be there, of course, because I love the symphony. It's my one of my favorite things. I tell people, don't sleep on a symphony. It's a it's a good good opportunity for date night. It's a good opportunity to gather with your girlfriends. It's a good opportunity to hang out on a Sunday afternoon. So I'm gonna be there, and I can't wait to hear um, this this music. So thank you all for being here this morning. Thanks, Babs. Great to see you always. Great to see y'all. So thank you so much. So if y'all have not gotten your ticket, I don't think they're fully sold out yet, but make your way over to uh, the New Haven Symphony Orchestra website, get you some tickets and uh, show up on Sunday at Southern Connecticut State University at the Lyman Center for Performing Arts. Uh, You will not be disappointed. You will not. It's my favorite thing to go to the symphony now. So I will see y'all. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Good people. Thanks again. (laughs) All right, Harry, play us out, and uh, we will see you all tomorrow on Friday. Bye now. (laughs) 